So if you open your Bibles or you can look in your corner post, so I like to call the cheat edition, um, and we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 18. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Oh, again, Father, we come before you this morning and we ask for your help. Lord, there are so many thoughts that are crowding out our, our minds right now. Again, we think of John, we think of Claire, we think of all the, the worries and the anxieties of the past week, this day, maybe even the week to come. And Lord, we want to cast them all at your feet because we know that you care for us. 
Lord, we rest in your presence. As Ben prayed at the start of the service, Lord, this is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We rest from our labours. We rest from trying to earn our own salvation because what you have done is sufficient. It is finished as you cried from the cross. So Lord Jesus, please quieten our hearts. So work in our minds that we would have the humility to hear what you have to say but also the discernment and the conviction to understand and to do it. Thank you for hearing our prayers. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I just say before I begin that what unites us is far greater than anything we might individually disagree on. Amen. I hope that truth comes through loud and clear this morning. And if it doesn't, then I've really failed in my role as a teaching elder here at Cornerstone. As you all know, I normally like to preach through books of the Bible, one after the other, but today's sermon is a one-off. I'm going to focus on Philippians chapter 2, and it's a topical talk, which... I've entitled, and as soon as you know the title, you know where I'm going with this, Christ, Caesar, and COVID-19. The reason I've chosen to do that is to clarify what Cornerstone's own position here is regarding government guidelines. That might seem like a strange thing to do, especially since uh, the health restrictions are increasingly being eased, but there was a communication Um, recently published in the Corner Post that really needs further clarification. The fault rests completely with me, but it's so important that my brother elders have encouraged me to cover it in a sermon. So here I am. Before I begin, though, can I just say that my conviction has been that there has always been a greater danger than covid And that is division within the body of Christ. That is what everyone in the eldership and I have been eager to protect as well as encourage everyone to avoid. That we would bear with one another in love rather than to ascribe to one another false motives or even worse, accuse a brother or sister of being a false prophet. You see, the session has always affirmed that we would never turn away anyone here at church simply due to their vaccination status. That continues to be our position. And if, God forbid, the government should ever seek to impose such a restriction upon us as believers, then we as a session have agreed that in that particular scenario we would not comply. We believe that that would be an unfair act of discrimination which would divide the body of Christ. And so we must obey God rather than men in that case. 
I have family members and very close friends who, for various reasons, didn't think it was right for them to take the vaccine. Indeed, there are some in our congregation who have lost their jobs, others who have lost further educational opportunities, they couldn't study at UTAS, for that very reason. And that's something that deeply concerns the session and not just us as elders, but I think it should grieve each and every one of us here. The verse that comes to mind at this point is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting at verse 25, he writes this. There should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers... Every part suffers with it. And if one part is honoured, every part rejoices. We've felt that keenly this morning already, haven't we? Our hearts ache for John and Claire. If one part suffers, we all suffer. There are other times where I think recently of Ruby and Liam when they got married. We rejoice in one marriage. We all rejoice. And so, if, in, if only even a few of us experience loss in this particular way regarding COVID, then we all share in the pain and the frustration to some extent. Because we are the body of Christ. We're the very ones for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died. And shed his own blood. Other states in Australia have had to endure measures such as extended lockdowns. We couldn't travel for months on end in New South Wales past a five kilometre radius. We were not allowed to attend weddings or funerals or the thing that I think I found even more frustrating or the most frustrating is for me personally we were forbidden in New South Wales from singing in church all the while demonstrations such as Black Lives Matter or major sporting events in New South Wales could proceed unimpeded uh, many of you already know this I spent the greater part of last year defending the rights of those who were unvaccinated for whatever reason. Both Angie and I agreed to be vaccinated, but we were very concerned about the rights of those that we knew and we loved who did not. And these were not obscure people. Principals of Bible colleges, the principal of Scots College in Sydney who trained at Cambridge University. Lots of friends and family, for whatever reason, were hesitant. In fact, even though I took the vaccine, I was hesitant because the government told me to be hesitant. <laughs> I was supposed to get AstraZeneca. And two days beforehand, the government said in New South Wales, no, 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 don't get AstraZeneca if you're under a certain age. We think it could cause blood clots, so I had to hesitate. Ended up getting Pfizer. So I was in one sense vax hesitant because the government told me to be. 
And so after much prayer, I personally took the matter to the General Assembly of Australia and I asked that as a denomination, we would not exclude anybody from our services or our churches simply due to their vaccination status. It was a long process and can I just say, it resulted in more opposition against me from my fellow pastors than I thought possible or reasonable. Indeed, I had, simply because I wanted to raise this at our own state assembly, I had a public letter of rebuke signed by 70 to 80 elders and ministers in the state of New South Wales, simply because I wanted to raise the issue. By the grace of God, the Presbyterian Church of Australia affirmed nationally that we would not, or that we should not rather, we should not seek to exclude anyone due to their vaccination status. That's the official position now of the Presbyterian Church of Australia. And I'm told that as a result, the Victorian government offered church workers, in particular, a medical exemption straight away. Which just goes to show, democratic process does work. But with that said, the elders and I have been conscious that not every government mandate is wrong or unreasonable. In fact, we have felt very strongly in our consciences that we should exhort God's people to submit to the governing authorities whom the Lord has placed over us. This is something that the Bible clearly and consistently commands us to do. And we think, as Christ's under-shepherds here, this is a principle that needs to be modelled at Cornerstone. And so when it comes in particular to wearing masks, we think that this is something, that if it should come back again, we should all obey. What's more, we believe that we made a mistake with our previous mask mandate in making that an option. I know that some people will say that they don't want to wear a mask because it goes against their conscience. And if that's your position, then can I gently ask, how consistent have you been in that regard? Did you wear a mask when you went to the shops? Did you wear a mask when you visited somebody in hospital? Because if you really believe that wearing a mask is wrong, then it is wrong all the time. And not just when you come to church. Indeed, one of the elders pointed out to me this week that the church is not the place to make your own personal political protest. If you really believe that things like the mask mandates are wrong, and you have every right to believe they are, then you can raise it with people like Dan, or in particular, Jono, who, can I just say, are not just members here at Cornerstone and fellow believers in Christ, but I, I think they are men who serve the broader community really well and are both extremely approachable. 
Leadership's hard, especially when you have to serve the whole of the community. And in a democratic society, they are the people that you should go to if you think that laws are unjust. To the majority of you, though, all this might seem like a mute point because the health restrictions are being increasingly rescinded. Although UTAS in particular hasn't lifted their ban on unvaccinated people studying from the, on their campus. But the elders and I believe that this is a way in which we can both, A, submit to the governing authorities uh, in obedience to scripture, but also, B, show love towards one another. Hence, while we will continue to defend the rights of those who are not vaccinated, if the mask mandates are reintroduced, we would ask everybody to comply with government policy. Because just because the government might overreach in one area doesn't mean that we should resist them in every area. Now, can I say a really good example of this is what happened in Daniel chapter 1, which we read from a little earlier. Daniel and his three friends refused to eat from the king's table. That was a line in the sand which they were not willing to cross. And there's some debate as to exactly why that was. Some think it was because the food was not kosher, was against the dietary laws of, uh, of the Pentateuch. Others, they think, because well, maybe it was because the food was offered to idols. Whereas others think that it was more about not giving total loyalty to the king. And the truth of the matter is, it might have been a combination of all three. But the point is, they knew where to draw the line on what really counted. And that, because this was a really risky decision for them to make. If they failed that test that they'd proposed to the king's chief official, then they could have all been put to death. But at the same time, notice that they were willing to compromise on some pretty big issues. For instance, they agreed to be trained in all of the literature and the learning of the Babylonians. It was an an indoctrination process. It would have all been soaked through with pagan mythology and occult spirituality. That's what it meant to learn. There was no separation for the Babylonians between church and state. They were combined. What's more, they also allowed their names to be changed in recognition to the Babylonian gods. So, for instance, Daniel's name means God is my judge. Whereas his new Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, means Bel or Marduk, protect his life. And it was exactly the same for each of the other three guys as well. They got them changed from God-honoring names to pagan God-honoring names. Now, I don't know about you, but if that was me, I wouldn't be all that happy. But Daniel and his mates didn't protest the point. To get a sense of just how significant this was, it would be like the government changing my name from Mark to Muhammad. Or, in this particularly correct transgender age, 
maybe having my name and pronouns changed to the female name from Mark to Mary. I think if that happened, I wouldn't be happy. All of which to say, you don't have to agree with everything the governing authorities do and yet go along with it. In fact, the path of wisdom is often about choosing which hill it is that you're willing to die on. Not every battle is worth fighting. And sometimes, can I say this, sometimes being overzealous for the truth can do more damage than harm. We read this in Ecclesiastes 7. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. In fact, sometimes our personal convictions can be a cover for pride. Where we think that we're more righteous or more informed or more zealous than everyone else. But can you see at that point, it's all about you. And in particular, as the Apostle Paul repeatedly warns us in the pastoral epistles, we need to be careful that we're not embroiled in all sorts of controversies that distract us and take us away from God's work through the gospel. The elders and I had a really great planning day yesterday. We spent half the day, most of it in prayer and reading God's word. And one of the key things to come out of this, and there'll be more announcements to come as to things that we've worked out, but one of the one things we thought, what do we stand for as a church? And we all had to, I think, repent before God and say, Lord, we're sorry because we've become distracted. We looked at the seven letters to the churches and what the Lord Jesus says to the churches. And we were reminded of the church in Ephesus that had lost its first love. You know, when Cornerstone started, and it was literally, David Jones tells me, birthed out of a prayer meeting. When it started, you know what we stood for? It's something we don't talk about enough. Win, build, send. That's who we are. Winning people to Jesus, building them up in Jesus, sending them out into the world to represent Jesus. The elders and I believe that coercing people to be vaccinated is wrong. It's like eating from the king's table. Whereas being required to wear a mask is not sinful. In fact, we believe it's wise. I actually think a strong argument can be made that it's a really good way of showing love to our neighbours and especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ who in their consciences think differently. Maybe a question to ask at this point. What would you be prepared to do for your brother and sister in Christ? What would you be prepared to give up? I 
I could launch in at this point upon an extensive Bible flipping exercise or maybe even an extended sermon series exploring all of the various issues involving the power of the state and the freedom of the individual's conscience. But, you know, I'm not going to do that. And the reason I'm not is because we have to keep coming back to the centre of our faith, and that's Jesus. He who unites us is far greater than anything we disagree on. He's the one who not only we worship, but you know, I've been reminded of this this week. If we focus on Jesus, all of these secondary issues pale into insignificance. They get resolved. You see, on the one hand, no one at Cornerstone has died from COVID-19. Even though we've all, I think, now pretty well had it. There's one or two that haven't. No one has died from it. But at the same time, and can I say this, no one at Cornerstone has been hospitalised or died from receiving the vaccine. That's something we should really stop and thank God for, as well as take into consideration. I've checked up on this uh, through official channels. There is no national database in Australia which separates hospitalisations or deaths compared with vaccinated or unvaccinated. There's just no way of working that out statistically. The records are not there. There's always a risk when taking a vaccine, though, and especially when one is developed quickly. I think of Jonathan Edwards, many of you know, probably one of America's greatest ever theologians. Martin Edwards died as a result of taking the smallpox vaccine. And he was only 55. So when it comes to medicine, there is always a risk. So I asked one of the registrars who worked in the ICU at the Royal. I thought, why don't I just go straight to the source? Now, this is not statistical. This is just anecdotal, okay? But I trust this person. And she told me that her observation was that the people in intensive care with severe COVID, are almost all unvaccinated. Which means that the COVID vaccine does provide some kind of significant protection, especially if you have a comorbidity like some of us have here. But herein, can I say, friends, welcome to the world of session. <laughs> because herein is the problem we have to wrestle with. How do we, as your leaders, allow everyone in the congregation to hold to genuine differences of opinion, but not fracture the spiritual fellowship which they have in Christ? How do we do that? Friends, this is something that the elders and I have agonised over and we continue to struggle with before the Lord. And so hopefully to answer that question this morning... I'm going to briefly look at Philippians chapter 2. And I want to briefly cover three distinct points, all of which are aimed at strengthening the unity that we have in Christ. As you can see from your outlines, each point is focused on Jesus because he is the answer to our problems. Every single time. 
The first point then is that our union with Christ means that we no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live for ourselves. Just take a look again at what Paul says in verses 1 to 4. Because being united with Jesus, our attitude towards others should completely change. It's not about you. We no longer live for ourselves, but for the benefit of others. Paul says in verse 3 and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. What does the ESV say? Even more significant than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why do we live in such a radically different way? Because we've been united with Christ. We've been comforted by his love. We've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We've received the tenderness of his mercy. And we've experienced the compassion of his forgiveness. The truth of the gospel is that we who were once broken in sin, God has taken the initiative to make us whole in Christ. Like the prodigal son, we who were lost have now been found. There's this epic poem called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. It was written over 100 years ago, but it's still a classic. It's a bit long, um, so unfortunately I can't read it all to you now, but it's well worth looking up if you get the chance. The opening line goes like this. It says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistied hopes I sped and shot precipitated. Now it's really quite beautiful and the poem goes on to describe how for many, many years this particular man resisted God's call until he couldn't. In fact, in this man's life he was addicted to opium. But the poem talks about how the Lord never gave up on him but relentlessly pursued him. He was, as the poem's title says, the great hound of heaven. He's like a bloodhound on the scent of a rabbit. And here's the point, though, where we all have to stop running. And the Lord calls on us to believe. And like a freight train, he comes moving into our lives. Maybe that's what he is calling on you to do today. I can still remember how the Lord brought me to that particular point. I was living for myself. I was just wanting to do my own thing and basically live for my own glory. However, slowly but surely, with infinite love and patience, the Lord hemmed me in. The great hound of heaven caught up. And I was left with no choice of whether to receive or reject him eternally. Looking back now, it seems like it was just such an easy choice. But at the time, I felt the weight of that decision. 
Since that time, everything has changed. One of the biggest ways I think God immediately changed me and is continuing to change me is to stop living for myself. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. And I started looking out for the interests of others. Not that I'm perfect or I couldn't improve in that area, but being united with Christ means that you no longer think about your own rights and freedoms, but you think about others. In fact, I think that's one of the sure signs that you've been saved. It's that you consider others more significant than yourself. Because you worship someone higher than yourself. And in turn, Jesus leads you to lay down your life for others. Shouldn't this then directly affect how we both view and relate to others who think differently to us regarding such a simple thing as vaccines or masks? How can we be united to Christ and not seek to be united to our brothers and sisters? Following on from this is the second point, and that is the example of Christ in verses 5 to 11. I want to stop and really consider who Jesus is as well as what he has done. First of all, the Bible makes this extraordinary statement that Jesus was in very nature God. That's just such such a massive truth to get your head around. So often in the Gospels, the disciples will say, show us, show us the Father, Jesus. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. One of my lecturers at Moore College used to be asked, he was an evangelist, John Chapman, have you ever seen God? And he would say, no, but I would have if I was in the right place at the right time. And they go, what do you mean? He goes, well, if I was in Nazareth about 2,000 years ago, I would have seen God walking in human flesh. From all eternity, Jesus was equal to God because he and the Father were one. Or to put it differently, as the early church fathers would say, and I love this expression, there never was a time when he was not. There never was a time when he was not. Isn't that a beautiful expression? All power and majesty and glory and wisdom and strength are rightly owed to Jesus. (laughs) He alone created all things and in him alone all things hold together and have their being. And so if anyone could rest upon their own individual liberties or rights, then it had to be Jesus. In coming to earth as a man, he never had to submit to anyone. And yet, that's not what Jesus did, did he? No, he made himself nothing. Jesus took the very nature of a servant, a slave. He humbled himself 
And he became obedient to death, even to the ultimate humiliation of death upon a cross. Why? So that you and I can be saved. He did it for you and me. Jesus was crucified to take the punishment for the sin which we had committed upon his own shoulders. It's just the most incredible, profound act of self-sacrifice the world has ever seen. Isn't it? The king, that the king of all kings and the lord of all lords would do this for those who in every single way are infinitely beneath him. It would be kind of like Queen Elizabeth working as a cleaner. Not resting in her status or her royal position, but leaving it all behind so as to bless and serve someone else. Or to put it another way, it would be like you and I turning into a cockroach. To lower ourselves so much as to be divested of all dignity, power and honour. But that's the example which Jesus has left for us. And that's obviously really helpful in helping us to think through what it means to love one another as a church. Because if Jesus laid down his life for us, then shouldn't we lay down our lives for others? Especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if in their conscience someone feels like you are sinning against them by not wearing a mask, I know this might seem ridiculous to some of you, but just go with me for a moment. If somebody in their conscience, in our congregation, feels like you're sinning against them by not wearing a mask, maybe ask yourself, why am I not willing to make this particular sacrifice? Especially if it's just for an hour or two each week. What is your primary priority or driving desire in not doing that? Can you see how our union with Christ transforms how we think differently? All of which leads to the third and final point. And that is, our salvation from Christ means that we should do everything without complaining or arguing. This is actually one of the key ways in which we can make the gospel attractive. Uh, As to how Paul says... We shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. It's not just that you hold out the word of life. It's that you hold it out in unity with your brothers and sisters. It's that you hold out the word of life without arguing, without complaining. Because our unity with each other actually reflects the unity that we have with God through the gospel. Because... Christ's sacrifice for us empowers us to be a living sacrifice for others. And you can't really sacrifice for others unless you first receive the sacrifice that God has given us in Jesus. You see? 
Paul says in verse 17, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you. You see, sometimes that's how it feels in church. You just, it's like, you know, a drink offering is something that's just poured out on the ground. It's not like it gets poured out in a cup and everybody consumes it and takes little sips and savours the moment. It's, in a way, wasted. Gloriously. Because it's, it's an offering to God. To others. So can you see how Paul's sacrifice for others is shaped by Christ's sacrifice for us? If you're a Christian, you'll get this. If you're not a Christian, talk to me later and I'll explain more. Here's the thing. You and I have been saved to serve. And can I just add, and this is a really big thing to say, that it also means at some point you have to submit to the leaders of the church. Otherwise, the promise that Tom just made this morning is just token. The elders and I don't always get things right. But as we've already seen today, it's one of the promises that we make as members. And so if you think that it's still wrong to obey the government and you also don't want to serve your fellow believers, then can I ask you to at least consider submitting to your elders? I know the world doesn't believe in hierarchies. The world thinks we're all egalitarian. That's not the Bible. The Bible says that we are to obey the governing authorities in the state and also in the church. The Spirit says in Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. And then it says, Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. And you know, can I just say, leadership's hard. The elders at Cornerstone are some of the godliest men I've had the privilege to serve alongside. But they are not just your brothers in Christ. They are that. But they are under shepherds who will one day give an account to the chief shepherd for what they have said and done. They have a special accountability to the Lord. Which means that we will not only be held to account for what we do, but you also will be held to account for how you respond. And so whatever personal objection you might have had, it has to be tempered with this biblical truth. Will you obey the state? Will you love your brother and sister in Christ? Will you submit to the leaders that God has given you in his church here at Cornerstone? I'll leave it with you. I want to conclude this morning, though, with a word of exhortation. Ex exhortation. Extortion. <laughs> oh, Freudian slip. There's no money involved. Just put all your minds at ease. 
a word of exhortation. <laughs> but it's a serious one. Don't give in to fear. I've heard people on both sides of this debate accuse the other side, and to varying degrees, it's probably true, of giving in to fear. You see, on the one hand, you could be so afraid of any new medical technology as well as changes in the geopolitical scheme that you withdraw from fully engaging with others because you're afraid. You can become so absorbed with fear and what's happening in the world that you forget this one essential truth. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is on his throne. And can I say this? COVID is from the hand of Jesus. If you don't believe me, read the book of Revelation. Because wars, rumours of wars, false prophets, sicknesses, diseases, they're all because the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, broke the seals on the scroll. COVID is God's judgment, not Satan's. And you need to fear Jesus more than you fear a disease. Absolutely everything is under his powerful, almighty, omnipotent hand. But then on the other hand, you can be so afraid of the disease such as COVID that you unnecessarily withdraw from interacting with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the other side of it. You can be so fearful of getting sick that you become overly cautious and afraid. I don't know about you. My family and I have done a fair bit of hiking. Every hike I do, even if it's going down to Hearts Mountain, it's not the end of the earth, but from the top, I'm pretty sure you can see it from there. You see people walking along the path with a mask. Pretty sure you're not going to get COVID on Hearts Mountain. Now, I'm not saying that we should throw off all restraints. Instead, what I'm saying is that you need to ask yourself, no matter what your position is, are you dominated by fear or faith? That's a question that we need to consider, no matter what your opinion might be. We don't have to live in fear because Jesus is Lord. He's defeated sin and sickness, and death, once and for all. And we especially don't need to fear his judgment, since through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've all been saved. Some people, rather unlovingly, not necessarily here, but we've got lots of friends out in the world, and the broader church, some people have yeah, rather unlovingly suggested to me because we took the vaccine, oh, well, you'll be dead in a year. Well, I go to meet Jesus. And I get there before you. The Apostle Paul says in verse Romans 8, 
I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor the angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, uh, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Nothing can separate us. If we let COVID separate us, though, we've truly failed as a church. Not from separating us from God, but from each other. What a disaster that would be. All of which to say, don't let a sickness like COVID take away the joy and the assurance that we have in Christ. Trust in Jesus then with your future, what you'll do for work, and how you'll survive. I don't say that lightly. My own son lost a very lucrative job profession because he didn't take the vaccine. One of my sons. He now has a better job. Trust in Jesus with your health, the time and the circumstances when he will take you to be with him. All your days are written in his book before one of them comes to be. Trust in Jesus with whatever fear or anxiety you might have because he is good and he's powerful to save. If you're anxious about how your, your health is going, can I just say this? Cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. And on a human level, the deacons will help. There is a greater danger, friends, than COVID. And that is division within the body of Christ. So let's look to Jesus and all he has done so that we strive to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace for the praise, glory and honour of his holy name. Let's pray. Ah, oh Lord. We are weak, but you are strong. How often we stumble, how often our hearts are prone to wander and yet as the great hound of heaven you keep bringing us back. Lord we thank you for your love which is stronger than death. We bring all of our fears and anxieties before you and we lay them at your feet. Father, we pray for your blessing that we would be united as your body because you have united us through your Son. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed to do this. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have allowed the schemes of Satan to disrupt and divide us. Forgive us. Cleanse us. And renew us all by your Holy Spirit. Where there is hurt, may there be healing. Lord, where there is distrust, may there be love. This is impossible with us, Lord, but we look to you, our Saviour. And we know that all things are possible. Uh, 
are possible with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.